Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. This is Asia Tech Podcast. We're all about the exciting stories that make the Asian tech ecosystem, the Pacific today, so dynamic. And what we're going to do today is dive a little bit deeper. We're going to go into some of the deep tech. We're going to look at blockchain, AI, experimental learning to help us unpack all of that. PK Razam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a number of different reasons. And I've been enjoying your thoughtful posts and articles on LinkedIn and all over social media about those subjects, blockchain, AI, etc. We're going to talk about the disruptive change, the worlds of finance, government, and all of that change and its impact on humanity, especially in here in, in the Pacific region. You're down in Melbourne, I'm in Tokyo. But first, PK, we can't talk about solving some of the world's greatest challenges without talking about cute kittens. Because I hear, <laughs> I hear on authority that you like collecting and breeding digital cats. Yes, I do. In the blockchain world, not in the real world. In the real world, I have a, a Japanese dog, which is the Shiba, right. which you might be familiar oh, with. Very well, yeah. The in dog. The blockchain. <laughs> yeah, I have a dog. Yeah, I have a dog. Uh, but in the, real, in, the, in the decentralized world, um, I breed cats. Right. Well, what's all that all about? I mean, it sounds sort of, you know, it sounds like a bit of fun, but there's a serious element to it. So can you help us understand? What is going on? Yeah, I think um, if, if you traverse back the story of blockchain or the technology, it's been very much a very tech focused in mainstream, um, you know, uh, couldn't get involved in it. So I think there was a project that was started, I think, a year ago called CryptoKitties, which was essentially um, giving the mass media to be able to go and um, buy or sell or breed uh, digital kittens. In, in blockchain. Uh, what drew me to that one is is the the brilliance behind how they built just three smart contracts, right? Uh, and, and maybe if we have a chance, we'll go into smart contracts. Mm. And the entire network is powered on those three smart contracts. Mm. Um, so it just gives you a, a preview into what the new types of businesses will be in the future. It's not about monolithic, you know, infrastructure or monolithic, you know, um, uh, what do you call uh, housing that you need to keep your staff? Um, it's everything running on internet or everything running on blockchain. It will be will be the new types of businesses. Right. What's your involvement with that company? Um, so very much just as an early doctor, and then just looking at the smart contracts and you know contributing to that code. You know, in the early days, that's it. So. Okay, I want to ask you about what attracted you to that project because it sounds fascinating. But just explain to me, what is a yep. digital kitten? Uh, a digital kitten is so I don't know if you know. Remember the days where we had Tomagachi, you know that, that yeah. little device right. you had to feed. So take that and put it on the blockchain world or on the internet. So it's a digital version of it, and then mm. every kitten has what they call as attributes. Um, it's very genomically driven, so they have a generation zero, generation one, and the generations goes on. Mm. Um, there's only a limited number of kittens that will ever be released. Um, so let's say you have a particular type of kitten, and I have one. We might choose to actually sire, um, and then the new kitten that's born will have a completely different set of attributes. Right. Um, so yeah, so there's no revolutionary business breaking concept in it, but I think it, it's the fun element of it of people are able to come on board and play with it. But the tech that's powering is pretty powerful, right? Mm. So it's powered on Ethereum blockchain. It's using three smart contracts and it uses something called the MetaMask um, uh, digital wallet. That's a Chrome plugin, right? right? It's a Chrome browser plugin. So so in terms of you know getting a startup up and running, um, there's zero cost in terms of you know incorporating a company or um, you know, having any licenses to uh, to run the business, um, you're you're just essentially writing a piece of code, putting it on the internet, and then that piece of code is actually starting to you know generate value, pass value, and as a result, the community pays a commission or a fee uh, for that value that's been delivered. Right. So from the numbers I got last time, I think the the, the developers who built this particular project are generating north of $250,000 US a day just in fees. Wow. And they, they, what is the actual attribute used to solve? What would that 
Is it sort of open in the sense that you could use that to solve any particular type of coding problem or is yeah, it specifically absolutely. aimed? Right, okay. Yeah, so I think you could go look at the smart contracts. It's for everyone's um, visibility. It's not private, it's open source. Um, you can potentially you know, um, fork it, learn from it, and then see if there's real-world applications that you can solve with a similar construct. Right. Okay. This is fascinating. And I want to see if I can kind of, for myself, try and understand it a little bit better because obviously I'm an outsider to the world of blockchain and you are yep. obviously well positioned to help us understand it from the outside position of, you know, us looking in and thinking, okay, what does that mean to us? You know, a bit of background. Myself, PK, I was an artificial intelligence graduate back in, and you'll probably laugh, 1995. <laughs> Right, I wouldn't laugh. I'm probably at the same. same oh, okay, group. all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the difference is, is you found a way that this kind of all makes sense. I mean, my my thesis back in 1995 was based on. I don't know if you remember Christopher Langton did a lot of work yes. in artificial life, and back yep. then it was sort of you know, here's an insect that lived and died in a virtual world, and you know it had virtual food and virtual enemies, and it could breed. And I sort of see similarities in what you're saying here. And it was all sort of powered by, I mean, what at the time, I don't know how this sort of connects with what you're talking about, genetic algorithms, which are basically effectively pieces of code or information stored in that actor, that insect, if you like. And then you would sort yes. of mutate that. And yes. the idea is, is that we don't know how to solve the problem, but the, you know, by iterations, many, many iterations of living and dying and breeding out you know, the best, that sort of natural selection, we will solve the problem, which is out yep. there, right? And, you know, I worked on this thing and I had sort of, I don't know, you know, back in the day, some crappy old computer to run it on 1995. It wasn't even Windows back then. <laughs> and I concluded this is that we didn't have enough computing power to come to any kind of, you know, you know, conclusion. You needed billions and billions of iterations to get something intelligent. And then, you know, no company in the world would ever find this research financially useful. So <laughs> what has changed? We're sort of 25 years on and looking at what you're talking about and, you know, breeding digital cats. Where do you see the application of that? Are we still sort of in the academic phase? Like, you know, people like myself back then are saying, okay, this is really interesting. And it's sort of kind of real world. But have we worked out how to monetize this in business? Yes, we have. I mean, um, I mean, being a, a serial entrepreneur myself, I'm on my second blockchain startup. So, um, so what I've what I've done is like I've built a stack which abstracts your your digital protocols. Like you know, so it's a it's a stack that sits on top of Bitcoin protocol, Stellar protocol, Ethereum protocol, and any other protocols. There's like a thousand protocols out there um, being created, but there's only let's say you know hundred of them are you know. Um, you can build a, a, a minimum viable product or a commercially viable product on top of that. So, so when we built our stack or our platform, we said, okay, can I go build a vertically integrated industry solution? That's one. That's more from a technical feasibility. And the second thing is, can I go and convince a customer to pay us dollars to build a solution or a business or an application on top of the stack, which I think we managed to prove that in the last couple of years. The first years was just head down, bum up, you know, building the tech, you know, engineers locked into the boiler room and building it. Mm -hmm. The last two years we've been testing on, you know, problem solution fit, as you may call it in the startup world. Um, and then we're just getting into product market fit and commercialization, right? Um, so it's quite interesting because I thought I would, go and solve this problem in a particular industry or a horizontal, but then I've managed to service clients in four different industries, you know, all the way from financial services to, you know, high net worth family offices um, to, you know, supply chain and logistics. Um, and then the most re recent one is in the, in the utility space, you know, in the retail space. Uh, and then we're working on a life science project. So it's interesting, we, you know, you brought up CryptoKitties, but we're actually dealing with real genomic data and then taking those models, <clears throat> putting it on blockchain uh, for the purposes of two things, right? So I think just imagine a scenario where, let's say you, me, and our friends and our friends' friends, we all have our genomics profile and we put it on blockchain we, and we choose to share that data. And then you can apply, you know, machine learning or AI algorithms on there to do two things. One is you can do disease discovery to figure out 
which of these genes are mutated, what new diseases are can we anticipate coming out in the world, and which parts of the world do we reckon it's going to actually have the first outbreak. And then having that knowledge, you can then go to the pharmaceutical companies saying, we think we have some disease models. Can we work on drug discovery models, right? So let's say they've done the drug discovery and the cocktail generation. Then the third piece of that is obviously to go find clinical trial candidates to be part of the clinical trial process. And then last but not the least is actually you've got a drug that's ready almost just in time when the disease, you know, outbreaks in the world, right? Mm. So... So it's like you've got, yeah, you've got, you've got applications which are very, you know, fun, cute, and then you have something really serious applications that can be built on this. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to Eli Lyons, who um, he works for. I mean, he calls it bioinformatics, a company based in Tokyo, which is, uh, um, you know, in a similar sort of way, they, uh, you know, they approach drug companies and help them with the, the discovery process. And I was surprised to learn. I'm sure you know this better than anybody else, is that the pharmaceutical companies are, I don't know if it's a, a great word to use it to describe it, but very wasteful in their R&D process. You think that, you know, there's some very smart guys, which there are, very smart people in these companies doing the, the drug uh, discovery process, but their sort of hit rates, you know, the success rates are terrible if you compare it to other sort of industries. But that's just sort of the nature of their their whole process, right? So I would have right. thought that they had that all worked out, but you know, in a way, that's an extremely wasteful part of the their business, right? But extremely necessary as well. I mean, I don't know how it actually works out in terms of numbers, but if you could go there and show them a better way of doing it, surely they're going to be receptive to that. So, I mean, how, how do you do that in terms of selling them the idea of applying something like blockchain to that? Do they get it? Is it does it require yeah. some sort of, you know, fit with their sort of terminology? How do you do that? So we, we, I normally don't bring up blockchain or crypto or any of those protocol techie. I mean, I'm a propeller head, but I, I try to keep that away when I go and meet the C-suite, right? right. Or when I'm sitting in a boat. Um, so it's very, you know, um, strategic conversation saying, you know, what industries or what markets do you want to play for the X number of years? What new markets do you want to discover, right? Hmm. So it's very much driven around saying, I mean, it's 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 your classic, you know, McKinsey model or any any strategy company model is saying, understand what technologies they have at their disposal today or what resources they have, you know, and then what value or power or speed it's giving to them, right? And then as a result, you know, does that power and speed give them any reduction in operational cost from a business point of view or a capex cost from a technology point of view? And then on top of that, we'll say, okay, what new new businesses can we unlock? Mm. What new economies economies can you participate in, right? I mean, this looks like a very 100,000-foot level, you know, discussion, but that's what you need to have at that level to understand, you know, what vision they're driving. And then the second or third conversation is then you say, okay, well, let's unpack how you do disease discovery or drug discovery, right? And then you really, at that point, you can actually bring up, um, you know, more tactical models saying we do, they'll say today we do very monolithic, you know, discovery business. We have to get all these data points, but they're very centralized. You know, let's say it's a European company. They can't actually access American data. They can't access Australian data or they can't access Chinese data or, you know, Asian data. But then we'll say, what if, right? What if you had blockchain where you had access to, you know, data from any part of the world? It's anonymized, right? And you, you really don't know who it is, but you get these really valuable data, data sets. And they're actually consented by the customer. So you're not limited by the nation state or you're not limited by the country saying, you know, these privacy rules apply. You can't use it because it's very consumer to, to the company direct. So, it's a, so those new models are getting unlocked where the boundaries are almost getting, um, what do you call, uh, the boundaries don't exist, right, in the internet world. Um, then they start to unlock. I'm like, holy cow, you know, you can actually do this. Then they'll say, can we do a pilot, right? Um, and then the rest is history. So then once you, you're in the conversation and you do a pilot, um, they start to see um, how they can use this piece of technology, you know. Mm. So let's have a look at some of those examples. If you were to take that, idea to pharmaceutical you're basically saying let's unlock all that information that happens on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of gathering information about patients and about people and put that onto this distributed blockchain 
and make it anonymize it so there's no sort of issues with privacy or some you know that that naturally people will be reticent about giving up their information or sharing it yep. and then give pharmaceuticals access to that for the greater good so that's sort of pharmaceutical where where else can this apply where else can you take that idea of decentralizing information and apply it to different verticals and importantly yeah. where are people receptive to that because i think that's important isn't it yeah, so I think I mean if you if you look at the the mass market consumer, I think they'll probably be the first one actually um, sort of adopting this. So there's few examples I can throw. Right, so in that in that pharmaceutical or life science model, um, so there's a new breed of um, cohort or a new market that's being created. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, biohackers and quantified self. Very right? familiar, yeah. Yeah, so so they're very they're very tuned to the fact that they want to look at their body signals, the vital you know vital signals and and all this data. So they're not shy from connecting a continuous glucose monitor into their body and saying, "Hey, if I ate this, my glucose levels are up." Right. Yeah. So you'll you'll start seeing you know these cohorts basically you know switching on these technologies and then putting their data sets out there. And then you know, from, you know, linear model and logarithmic model, and then what will happen is then the, the late adopters will say, oh, we just saw Graham and PK's data. So it's mm-hmm. not a bad idea to put our data in there and see what happens, especially if, if companies and businesses are actually giving me a proactive value saying, PK, don't eat that because you have a propensity of getting sugar if you keep eating that. Or if you don't work out, you know, you're going to have a cardiac, you know, you have a higher probability of getting a cardiac um, attack, you know. Yeah. Obviously, it's an, it's not a medical advice, but it's actually you know me being more on the preventative side than being more, more on the re- reactive reactive side. Right. So so having said that, so that's more medical, right? So then also look at identity as a problem, right? So if you look at the we leave so much um, digital footprint or digital shadow or digital cookies as we progress through the internet. So. Um, and that data is available for certain players, and we all know who those players are, and they're collecting, you know, copious amount of data, you and me and everyone else. But there will be a time when what will happen is the data that we have, uh, we we put on the internet, belongs to us, and then we'll create what we call as prof- profiles of profiles, and we choose to actually give those data as a profiles to certain transactions. So, so I'll give you an example in Australia. Let's say you're about to go and rent. Right, so you have to go through something called a hundred-point check. So they'll ask you for an ID, uh, they'll ask you for a credit card, you know, a bunch of you know credentials to make sure you tick those hundred point, and then you know you're qualified to apply for the for the rental application. Mm. The future world is like I've got a few companies here in Sydney and Melbourne where they're putting all of that data into blockchain. And then the 100-point check is not me giving you a copy of my driver's license, but I'm actually giving you a digital copy of my driver's license, and it's time-blocked. Time so I'm, I'm going to give it to you for 24 hours, and you've got to get that process done. And after that, you will have no access to that information anymore. So I, I believe Jamie Skeller, who you know, um, yes. co-founded Horizon State, has a solution to that problem, right, which is basically using blockchain to pre- – provide i suppose a tamper-proof way of uh selecting in and electing candidates and, and just the whole sort of process of selection and you know sort of identification within voting you know to, to unpack that help us understand something an application of that for example what what is the the benefit of putting that onto the blockchain what, what is the problem exactly that that's solving so I mean, I mean, Jamie will probably—he's probably already been on the show, so yeah, and he's he unpacked Horizon State. So I mean, they're solving one problem now, which is the voting right and identity, um, which we all know—you know—not every country you have a hundred percent or a higher percentage of the population showing up and doing the the voting. I mean, even though voting only happens, it's very seasonal. Um, that application itself is so transportable into other use cases, whether it's you know, in United Nations or UNESCO or, you know, your vote into a particular, you know, let's say Paris Agreement is an example. So it doesn't have to be very citizen driven. It could be also council driven. It could be government driven. So um, it can be just plopped into different use cases and they can use that particular uh, function in there. Uh, the other thing, the flip side is like if I was a water, then I'd, I mean, at this point, I can't figure out exactly 
who has access to my data? And then how many of them are, you know, good actors versus bad actors? So there's no way for me to actually go and claw it back and say, you know, I just want to give my data to only certain actors mm. in the ecosystem. Uh, but having it in in a technology such as blockchain, you know, it gives you that you know full access and full control. It also gives you audit trail in terms of knowing. I know I gave my data profile to Graham on first of March for you know two hours. That's it. And then and then after that, you don't get access to it. And then I can actually use use it for a different transaction or a different service provider. You know, whatever the the call of action is, mm. but there were. I mean, obviously, it's a very tech-driven conversations today. But I think there'll be time. You know, in maybe in the next few years, the the regular user will not know the power of this technology. They will continue using you know the products and services in the market. But I think what what will be given to them is a better way for them to actually manage you know their privacy and their better ways to manage their identity or better ways to manage their their voice in the ecosystem, right? Yeah, well, I'm fascinated to learn a bit more about that. I want to backtrack a little bit if I can, PK, and yes, talk about yes. quantified self, because you brought that up, something that's interesting to me. I'm just curious if you have sort of taken part in any of these projects or you quantify your own data. I mean, do you have any kind of trackers which sort of measure your own? Blood I do. Or I, yes, I or do. What? <laughs> I Tell do. us about I think it. it. I just haven't put it on the public domain yet. Maybe I will next year. So I think that's one of the projects that I have to just open source. Um, and I've also subscribed to a few devices that are coming online. So you probably heard of Aura Ring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that will give you, you know, uh, better signals and better data. And, and then what I'm trying to do is actually build some data science models that I'm applying my own own data to see, you know, what am I discovering, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, if I if I find something new, then I'll put I'll open source it and see other people can use that particular model or that data. You know, what what are you actually tracking of yourself? Because I mean, there are sort of there's a sliding scale of involvement in this. You can go from just tracking your heart rate on a daily basis to tracking what you know what what comes out of your body and into the the you know into the system. Yeah. I so mean, gotta, there's gotta, a whole extreme <laughs> here, isn't it? What what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. I, I don't have a chip in my body, but I, I mean, if someone actually convinced me, I'll probably do it. I'm not. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard for you to convince me not to do it. So, um, so I guess what I do is I, I, I do regular blood sampling right now. Mm. Uh, there is a company which is working on red blood. Uh, so when that comes out on the market, I think it'll be very, very useful for anyone to be able to actually do that testing. You don't need to go to a pathology. You don't need to, you know, have you know, a testing full of blood to do that, it'll right. it'll be done as, as simple as just a drop. And it's not even wet blood, it's dry, dry blood, right? Um, I'm, I monitor other stuff. Like what I do is I also monitor my, my kinesthetic state. So I do intermittent fasting. So I only eat for, say, the time I wake up to the last meal I finish at 6.30 p.m. And after that, I don't eat anything, right? So, so trying to give my body some rest and it's interesting when i do those experiments i actually, i can see what clarity i bring to my thought process uh if i'm actually writing a strategy or a white paper or i'm coding it's a lot more clear i'm able to get mm-hmm. stuff done so much faster uh and, and you have more time to do all these interesting projects right um i i'm also um recalibrating my my gut um so i don't know there's a few books on gut uh, there's research proven that your gut is um, directly connected to your mm. brain. So if you've got a crappy gut, guess what? You're going to have a clouded brain. So you've got a very good, you know, um, a gut system. Let's say a good bowel movement. Um, you're going to have a very good, you know, sharp brain. Um, so I take uh, prebiotics and probiotics, not the one you get on the on the counter. Uh, these are medical grades. Uh, so you have to recalibrate that bat- uh, that bacteria composition. Um, so I think I'm just waiting for companies to do a microbiome test. So it's mm-hmm. basically a gut bacteria test. It's not available today. They're all in research. So there is one company in Brisbane. Uh, they claim they're going to launch something soon. Um, so I'm really eager to see when they'll have that launched in the market. Then I'll, I'll have my microbiome tested and see, do I have all the right bacteria composition or do I need to add or did I have to reduce something? Yeah. Right. So this is where you're you're measuring the bacteria in your body in the same way you sort of measure the genome and, and, you know, sequence that you would actually sequence or you would be able to get some kind of output saying, you know, the data on your bacterial 
Because, I mean, I think, you know, if we're going into this, it's fascinating because, as you say, people don't realize how connected your the bacteria in your body is to your your whole, if you like. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about your brain and, and, and people think that when they think of bacteria, think of antibiotics and something that needs to be wiped out. When in fact, we are bacteria, nothing more than bacteria. You know, there's a lot of research out there that says we're just sort of walking vessels of bacteria, more or less, right? And what you're yeah. saying is that that can be measured. I'm, you yes. know, will, do you think there'll become a day where you, not just the bacteria, but I mean, because that's an extreme to try and measure all that. But, you know, blood samples, we can do that already. Can we sort of take the choke points out of that measurement? Because there are choke points, isn't it? I've got to go to somebody and get my blood extracted. Somebody's got to stick a big needle and those are big needles that they take blood samples with right into my yes. arm and take all that out can we take the choke points out of that such that you know there's yes, something I'm in my system which gives me immediate feedback yes we're actually working with a company but i can't disclose them they're in stealth right now um but hopefully in 2018 they'll they'll come out you know in in a version of it um so what they'll do is actually they'll give you um, a rich profile of inflammation markers, right? So if you go back and look at, you know, everything that you're looking at, healthy lifestyle, um, is driven by, you know, how inflamed your body is, how inflamed your internal organs are, you know, how inflamed your um, your entire system is, right? So so you might say, oh, let's just, let's take a walk or, you know, go get some rest or drink something, you know, uh, which is of high, um, what do you call it, mineral content, you know, so, or just have a green juice or whatever. Mm. Uh, or just have a turmeric, you know, just have a turmeric drink or a turmeric chai or a turmeric latte. Those are all like putting band-aid to the actual symptom, right? Um, you're not actually solving what's causing that inflammation in your body. So imagine a time when you don't have to go extract, you know, uh, a testicle full of blood, but it's just a small prick, but it's not going to be hurtful for you. Um, and then you're able to sh- ship it off to someone and they, they send you, a rich profile of what your inflammation markers are at that point of time. And then you can um, recalibrate. It's almost like, you know, the the pirate's compass. So you have your compass on your phone and you can recalibrate that that quarter or that month or that week based on the data that's being serviced to you on your on your devices. Mm. I guess the, the holy grail is to be able to tie that whole loop together, isn't it? In that you could just have, you know, get to that stage where, there's something there's a chip in my body which can basically measure that just in the same way we're now able to do it with glucose right i mean you can yeah i mean it's a bit clumsy isn't it but we're getting there yeah i mean if i mean i'll give you an example right so my mom my mom has a pacemaker right so i mean she's not far-fetched she's still very functional very alive uh and that device is actually kind of like you know being there as a standby when the heart basically is not able to pump at the rate it needs to pump so you know so i think the, the adventurous ones like you and me, and I'm sure there's, a, there's millions of other people out there who are listening to this podcast would say, I don't mind, just put that little chip in my yeah. arm yeah. and then give me the data that I need, right? Mm. Exactly. I mean, let's talk about the adventurous ones because I suppose in a way they're, they're the ones who are trying to work out what the use case is and they're a bit more forgiving of not having the complete out-of-the-box solution. And I mean, I I read this with, I was excited to read that you're an adventurist yourself and sort of coming around to this is that, I mean, I'm an Ironman triathlete, so quantified (laughs) self and all the areas like, okay, I've had to learn that. And I've had to learn actually, okay, blood sugar, what does that mean? You know, carbohydrates, what's the difference between carbohydrate and fat? Starting at very sort of basic level. So, but I, I, I read that you climbed five mountains and cycled 850 kilometers in five days. So that sounds pretty, I know in Australia, that's probably no big deal, but what's the story there? You, do you see yourself as somebody who likes to go out on these crazy adventures? Yes, I think I think you've done your research really well. So <laughs> I can't hide behind you know. No, this my, is it's the blockchain. <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I used to be, um, you know, what you call as you know uh, a jet setter, you know, flying different countries, solving, you know, really mission critical pro- problems for a consulting firm. So as a result, you know, you're already burning lots of hours in midnight oil, you know, to just get stuff done. And then I had to find a way to kind of reset my my entire system every now and then uh, and recalibrate myself. And, and I'm pleased to hear that you're actually an Ironman athlete because I think hats off to them who can who can do it. Um, 
I love Iron, Iron Man. The only problem is I swim like a stone, so I had yeah. to find it. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to find sense. another. Yeah, so I had to find another sport that I could actually, you know, keep me going. So, so I used to run a lot, and then after that, I said maybe I'll switch to a um, long distance cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is what I did, which kept me in shape. The other thing is it also kept my lungs in um, in full capacity. Uh, so I always look for sports that's challenging my heart or challenging my or expanding my lung capacity. So, and then the offshoot of my long distance cycling, which led me to mon- um, mountaineering. Um, the reason I took that is because you know, as you can tell, like we're so wired all the time, right? There's either the phone or the computer or someone is actually texting you. Um, so I had to find a sport where none of these digital devices would work. And, and something that's actually much bigger than me as a human uh, that could challenge me because I'm very intellectually driven and, and sometimes I could actually, you know, take the best of you. So you have to still come back and how do you come back to, how do you dial back your, mm. to zero, right? So every time I go to mountain climbing, that's what it does. Basically, Mother Earth, you know, has no mercy on it. It just challenges you to the bone, right? Mm. Um, and so you have to train two, three months in advance to to get your lung to a level where you're able to survive in less oxygen because that's what happens as you climb these mountains. Um, so it feels like you're running a marathon, but actually you're just walking, right? It's just the, the lung is playing on you. Uh, and the other one is actually, they say if you talk to mountaineers, it's 90% mind and 10% body. So even though you're training your body to be absolutely fit as a fiddle, uh, but then your mind starts playing games saying, ah, oh, you know, I think I can do that. There's another one kilometer I have to to walk. I'll I'll skip this. I'll come back and try it next year, you know. Um, Amazing. Where did you climb? So I've done Kilimanjaro. um, I've done Fuji, uh, Mm -hmm. both morning and night. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like like the night better than morning. Um, I've done done Everest up to advanced base camp. Mm -hmm. Um, I might go back. Uh, and I'm looking at a few of the mountains now, either in South America or there's another one in India, but it, they call it um, Kailash. So yeah, essentially, yeah. They, so it's Tibet area, isn't it? What's up? Yeah. So, uh, would you consider doing a seven thousand? One of the yes. death zone. Would, yep. Because right. I, I mean, the reason I ask, I mean, obviously, I'm fascinated to learn a bit more about you. I'm also curious about that whole aspect you said about being going back to the analog state if you like where you're not being connected and you're not quantifying everything and you're not you know connected by your phone or whatever and we live in this digital world but you know when you do when you go into the death zone so to speak you i suppose that the real danger is things like i mean not just there but any of the mountains really hate you know like you're getting uh, an edema on the 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 brain or around the heart you can get sort of a blood clot caused by high altitude right um and and in that sense you would probably want to have a chip in your body or to be connected by a phone or so how do you balance that because you're talking about big you know physical and mental challenges and to do that without any kind of technology or any kind of you know device which could kind of help you would you consider that because it sort of balances out that need to get away from technology how do you sort of reconcile that yes i think you're asking for my secret recipe right please share it yeah (laughs) there's no secrets exactly you stepped into this world about decentralizing everything go for it exactly so so i practice vipassana meditation so i don't know if you've known of the practice yeah yeah so so what what vipassana, what vipassana tells you, or at least trains you to, actually, it's there's so many layers of meditation, but it allows you to actually get yourself tuned to your body, you know, and, and tuned to your breath, tuned to the level. Um, sometimes, I mean, I can go to states where I can actually see a holographic, you know, representation of my organs and how they're beating and at what rate the blood is actually, you know, inflow and, and outflow. I mean, as... Um, you know, it might sound, you know, not not from this world, but that's what it does, right? So mm-hmm. I think, so if you're able to practice or have any sort of practice which just allows you to be in connect with your body, right? I think that comes really handy when you're climbing in these mountains because you don't have anything telling you whether you're in the optimal condition or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that almost becomes your Sherpa, even though you have a real Sherpa, you know, right next to you, you're 
your meditative state gives you that extra fuel that you need to be able to make those decisions saying, okay, I will go forward and not do a stupid move and, you know, go into the dead zone. But it's a calculated risk you're making, right? So how do you balance that? I mean, that to me, as I can understand the connection, I wonder, people probably scratching their heads and saying, okay, you're talking about Vipassana meditation and you're also in this world of blockchain and AI. How does that all sort of come together? Because they appear on the surface and that's the key here. They appear on the surface like two very, very polar opposite worlds. Where's, the, are, where's so. the connection there? Or is that deliberately, no have you, have you deliberately kept those apart? Yeah, so deliberately I'm choosing to expand my horizon or, the, or you call it spectrum, right? So, yeah. I mean, if you, if you maybe you should have a follow-up topic on metaphysical, right? So I'm a, I'm a very metaphysical thinker. So I'm always looking at mental models and meta models that I can apply on my life. And then once it works for me, then I can take it to business and I can bring it to technology. So, so technology is just one of many resources that allows me to stretch my thinking and stretch a way of being, you know, not way of doing, but may a way of being. And it also gives me a, a way of actually unlocking new value that's already there, that's existent today in us, right? Mm. Um, and then the, and the reverse is obviously, you know, we're still humans. So we're wide, we're biological, exper- you know, chemical um, experiments that are running inside our body. So you have to be cognizant of that, right? Until such time that we have an AI, which does, you know, uh, a robot, which does AGI, right? Which is artificial general intelligence, which has the same level of um, ability that we do. And, and let's say you're able to inject consciousness into it, right? So that's really far away, you know, not very far, but, you know, there are a lot of experiments already happening. Um, like, I don't know if you watched the movie Matrix, where oh, yeah. you plug something in your body. And um, there are experiments running in John, Hop- John Hopkins today. Um, where you know patients are going through that today, and they're able to actually download new content into the brain, and the brain is already they, they'll speak a new language, you know. So, yeah, I mean, once we start opening the the box of AGI, artificial general intelligence, we we have to go metaphysical really to understand it, don't we? And it, it sort of throws up all kinds of philosophical questions which are beyond the 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 domain of normal business conversation day to day right i mean it's sort of it's so out there but in a way it's the the foundation on which which everything is built isn't it because at the end of the day it's going to get back to that like you talk about for example building uh some kind of it could be a robot or a program or something which has general intelligence behaves like a human being i mean i always sort of thought about that and thought well we we have to first start asking ourselves why are we intelligent in the first place and you know i i thought that was the question that people would never asked and I, I sort of came to the conclusion that intelligence going back to your kitties in a way it's like it, it helps us survive and it helps us download our information to the next generation right because if you're intelligent you're more likely to survive etc cetera, etc cetera. and so therefore intelligence was a survival tool and therefore could you have machines or computers that were intelligent if they weren't in any way, you know, affected by survival? Because, you know, then then the, you know, to be intelligent, you had to have a biological aspect, right? So that whole sort of world of biology and, you know, computing was sort of coming together, you know, and I always wondered whether people were actually considering that question or, or I've been out of the scene for long enough. So <laughs> maybe people have already answered it, but I always thought, that needed to be addressed is that why are we intelligent in the first place? Because we're just assuming that it's something that is a skill that we have, right? Where are we now with that? Yeah. But I, I think, I mean, I've got a, I've got a slightly different angle to it. I, I think intelligence again is a, is a broad spectrum, right? So the lens that I use to compare to what my brother might use in intelligence is completely different. Um, I reckon the machines will become intelligent, but it's, probably hard to tell at this moment if they will actually have consciousness Mm. right so so you can you can define intelligence being able to just do a certain task or repetitive task or a task that has a bit of a logic behind it you know so if you define at the lower end of that spectrum then you can say the you know the alpha go is intelligent it's able to you know play a game and they created the the next version of alpha go and that's even smarter than the first version right so, so where is the stop, where is the limit for that, right? So, but but then when you can say 
does it have empathy? Does it have consciousness? You know, is it able to actually, you know, contemplate, um, you know, my existence? Why am I here on earth? Um, that's a different, completely different question. I, I don't think so. We have machines that are, that are able to one, comprehend that question and to, you know, start having a dialogue with another human being in, in such a way that both of them feel like they're, they're being intellectually, you know, challenged or intellectually, you know, um, tickled to have a good conversation, mm -hmm. if you may. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let me ask you this, because I, I think we're, we're going to go a level deeper into the matrix now. Help me understand crypto machine intelligence, because I, I haven't heard this used before, but I guess this is somewhat an overlap between AI and blockchain. Yes, yes. What's going on there? I mean, help us understand what that actually is. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always had this intuition, maybe it's a gift that my grandpa gave me, where um, he said, if you have an intuition towards a particular, whatever it is, right, just go with it. And I, and I love cooking as well. So, so when I was first immersed into blockchain, and I was like, okay, you know, this is what, and I'm a computer science major, so I can appreciate the cryptography in it, and I can appreciate what the, the gamut of problems it could potentially solve, the types of new business models it would unlock, blah, blah, blah. Then I was studying ML, machine learning, then I was also studying AI, then I'm like, why do they have to all be separate, right? Mm -hmm. there? And then the more and more I was just digging into it, I realized that there's a convergence happening between you know, the crypto world or the blockchain world, um, the machine learning world and the AI world. Uh, because of one, we've started to generate this copious amount of data into the net. Uh, they're not in just terabytes, they're becoming petabytes, right? Um, and then what can you do with this data, right? So I think that's where I said, okay, what if there was a blockchain or what if there's actually um, a, a, a field or a domain which brought all of these three together, right? Um, and, and that's why I coined the, the, the world called CMI and I've been you know, working on a few experiments to see can I apply an ML algorithm on a blockchain to discover something? Can I take you know, Elon Musk's OpenAI um, API and apply on a blockchain and see if it works. And, and funny you should say that. And I don't know if you've heard of a, a blockchain called Definity. Yeah, I've heard of it. I'm not uh, to understand it though. It's a different matter. So please. <laughs> okay, so I won't I won't unpack the white paper. So, but but what I'll, what essentially what it does is it takes the entire. It's a, it's a convergence of blockchain and AI, right? Mm -hmm. So you've heard of the proof of con the consensus algorithm, the proof of stake and proof of work, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it, it's challenging even that and saying, hey, what if there was an algorithm which took care of the consensus algorithm in such a way that <clears throat> not all machines are locked up in the blockchain, not all computing power that we're you know, providing to the network is consumed for just for one block to be validated, right? So... So that's where those two fields of study are coming together and saying, let's create something for the greater good of the humanity and start unlocking it. And if you've read the news, I think um, earlier this month, they raised $61 million uh, to start unrolling that, that technology out. Right? Hmm. So CMI is not that far-fetched. Um, there's already projects that are coming out of the academia into the mainstream. Um, I think probably the first ones we're going to hear are like, you know, people like yourself, and people like me who are actually working in that space, then very soon you'll see applications getting built on top of that. So does it have a particular, you know, visionary goal, like say like singularity as an example, or, you know, the goal of getting to a stage where we can download, upload all our memories or personality into a computer and sort of lose our physical self, if you like. What, what's the, does CMI have an overarching goal, which is that this is where we got to get to, because you talk about solving the problems of humanity. That's very broad, isn't it? Yeah. But you got to have it broad because, you know, the, the types of people I want to attract are not limited to just the, you know, the propeller heads or, you know, the, the ones who choose to be, um, behind the scenes but not you know having are not comfortable having uh, a face-to-face -face conversation right because to unlock real value you got to have them really smart ones who are building all of this stuff and you got to have you know on the other side how do i bring a human dimension to it mm -hmm. how do i how do i bring a, a design principle around it you know how do i build a ui that is um still relatable for everyone in the community right uh, and how do i give it to you know um, to the unbanked right um, the unbanked don't have the same privileges that we do, you know, um, and so you got to you got to still take this technology and give it to them in such a way that they're able to uh, 
um, take it and use it for their, you know, their purposes. Um, so, so I will see a time where, you know, technologies like, you know, uh, the, the convergence of the CMI, right, <clears throat> will unlock, you know, um, you know, rather than having microgrids, you know, they'll have nanogrids. Mm. Uh, so, so a single hut would have a one solar roof and I'll have a battery and I generate, let's say four kilowatts and I only need one kilowatt and the, the remainder excess three, three kilowatts, I either, you know, um, sell it to my neighbor or put it back into the community grid. Right. So, so those types of projects are happening. Uh, they're being sponsored by UN, you know, or, or world economic forum. Um, and so the more, more of such projects, um, become alive. I, I think uh, you know the, you will see the real value of this technology. Otherwise, it'll go beyond what is the value of a Bitcoin. You know, who cares about that? Right? Mm-hmm. So, it was that's important. You know, because um, you can measure it. That's one way of measuring if that particular currency is getting adopted or not. Um, the latter is also important to start building real life applications. Could you take something like that and um, this is obviously a bit of an ambush for you, but um, can you take something like that and see, so it's talking about crypto machine intelligence and solve, or at least get near to solving the problem of, let's say, diabetes and diabetes globally, because, you know, we're collecting data about that already. Could you see CMI for that? How could you, how could you? do that where would you start if somebody came to you and say hey look we've got this huge project pharmaceutical company wants to do this where would that start yeah so i mean i think diabetes is, is the easiest one we can probably unlock uh, uh because the data is already there but unfortunately a lot of that data is actually stuck in in the in the pathology labs mm. right so i can't get access to that and then if if the uh, you know Patients or the citizens say, "Here's my data. Please take it." And then, and then, let's say you couple that with the quantified self data, so we we get a good clarity around what are they eating, what time are they eating, what time are they sleeping. You know, are they getting proper rest? Um, is their um, is their biological clock aligned with their you know life habits? Are they aligned with their circadian um, clock? So a lot of that data elements overlay can only be done. It can be done. I mean, in theory, in theory, it can be done, right? But in practice, you can only do that when you have enough compute power. You can only do it if you have enough, all of these algorithms that you apply on one data set. And then what comes out of that is really tangible insight that you can then take actions on. Hmm. Where would you start in that process? Because there's so many moving parts, isn't there? Like you talk about the, the data being locked in, pathology labs, et cetera. Where's the easiest lever to push on to make that whole process work? Do you start with the, the, the patients? Do you start with the pharmaceuticals? Do you start with government or the quantified self, propeller heads? If you had, you know, yeah. space and resources to do that, where would you first kick so in? I would, I would start, yeah, I would start with direct-to-consumer. I would start with the quantified self cohort uh, because they're a lot more open, like you said earlier in the um, in in the call, uh, they're actually a lot more forgiving. So if I got a particular number wrong, they're saying, that's fine, that doesn't look right. Um, they're happy to work with us. I would consider them as the alpha group, right? Um, and then once we bet down a particular algorithm works, we know a particular presentation of the data works for them from a consumption point of view, then we can start expanding on the data sets, right? Mm. Okay. Now, I want to know where you sort of stand and your, your thoughts and where the government fits in all of this. Because I know, for example, you, you are actively involved in helping governments understand decentralization effectively, which in a way sounds a bit of a, a, a paradox. I mean, a bit of con- contradiction. You're talking about very centralized forms of control and, you know, experimenting with decentralization. I mean, let's say, for example, like smart cities in Australia and New Zealand, as an example, and collaborating with Blue Chile. Now, there you have a, de- a centralized form of control looking at how you, de- you work with decentralized information. And in, in a way, there's all these sort of these dynamic tensions in that industry, whether, you know, in blockchain, you have decentralization of information. But, you know, there's always the media also wants to find the leaders, don't they? You know, who's, who's Nakamoto, who's, you know, or who's the celebrity that can help us understand that? Always trying to find that person who's kind of leading 
this movement. How does that all sort of balance itself? Do you see, I mean, you've mentioned the UN, for example. Do you see governments having an active role in inviting technologies and ideas which effectively, in, in the future, may make them, I don't know, redundant? Is that the word that I, you know, I could use? I mean, it seems a bit sort of, it's a very strong word to use, but, you know, it's definitely going to change the role of government and these centralized powers in our world in the future, right? Yeah. So I, I think if someone thinks that the government is going to disappear, I think they're probably misinformed, right? So it's more the latter what you just said. I think the, the type of the government or the, the way the organization will be structurally quite different. In the types of products and services that, we, that they offer to the citizens would be quite different, right? Um, so obviously it might require a completely different, um, what do you call, um, type of staff. Um, today, you know, for lack of a better word, we have, you know, um, very much heavy on process, uh, paper, uh, paper driven, you know, um, processes around councils and everywhere. So I think the first step in the process of the thing, what's happened is the decentralization movement took off, you know, a lot of the propeller heads, you know, back behind it. Now you have venture capitalists putting money into it. Then you have startups actually building startups on it. What we've done is we've left the, the nation states and we've left the governments behind, right? For whatever reason, right? So because we said, oh, they're the regulators. We don't want to talk to them. But I think they've changed, right? So they're saying we have to be part of it if, if, we, if we have to survive. So I think we have to, uh, at least in my role, what I'm doing is actually having conversation with the regulators. Even yesterday, I had a conversation with the ATO, which is the tax office, you know, saying, you know, here's, a, here's the type of company we're building. You know, how do we actually get, get you, you know, across it so that you know um, how this is going to influence how you would look at a company and how you're actually going to, you know, tax them? You know, and, and how would you collect tax, you know, in a scenario like that? And so they're very friendly. They're saying, oh, I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad you're actually proactively reaching out. And, and so we can actually create new um, new mechanisms in place or put new offices in place to be able to work with you guys or startups like you, right? Um, but if you, let's, let's take macro. Let's look at Earth. As, and, and if you look at all of the countries, obviously not every country operates in the same wavelength or they're not at the same speed or they're not actually at the, they don't have the same agenda, Right. Um, so the countries that are uh, that are openly, you know, experimenting on blockchain and they're very friendly to blockchain companies, unfortunately, are not you know, they're not in this jurisdiction, right? Um, so if you look at Dubai, they're actually a lot more open about it. They've actually rewired their core service, which is providing uh, services to uh, property holders. That entire value chain is getting rewired on blockchain, right? So if you went and bought, bought a house in Dubai. Um, and you want to switch on your telephone, electricity, data, water, all of the services, they're going to be provided to you via blockchain, right? Then if you go to China, they're rewiring the entire supply chain. The entire country runs on, an, on, a, on a supply chain bet, right? Because whatever they're producing there is not getting consumed in China. It's actually most of them is going outside of China. So, so they got to have a really robust supply chain across all industries to know exactly what goods are coming in as in raw material, and then what goods, what goods are manufactured and where is it getting shipped, right? So they're, they're on a massive project um, on rewiring their entire supply chain infrastructure across all industries using blockchain, right? So what's going to happen is, and just it's, we're talking about in the next three to five years, they will present to the world saying, Country A, country B, you have two choices. You can come and work with us or you can do business with us using blockchain as your plugin, right? Or you can choose it the legacy way. Mm -hmm. And the countries who are a lot more open and they want to participate in that blockchain would benefit because the, the, the cost of doing business is drastically reduced, right, in that value chain. Mm -hmm. But the ones who choose the legacy will have a higher cost of production, which means their COGS, if you look at the balance sheet, cost of goods sold would be very high, right? Because the manufacturing cost is very high. And as a result, they can't pass on the savings to the consumer. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, IDC heat map of the Asia-Pacific blockchain acceptance adopters, and it, it breaks it down, just sort of following what you were saying, country by country, and it sort of color codes each country according to its openness to blockchain. And we, we have sort of the green countries, which are pro. I mean, most of it's digital currency based rather than blockchain, but I suppose that's Correct. sort of an indicator, isn't it? I mean, it's a sort of a leading yep. indicator. You've got Japan, Philippines, Thai, 
Thailand, Singapore, who are the, the green countries. I may have missed out a couple of there. Then yeah. you've got the uh, the middle based countries where you've got Australia, China, um, Hong Kong, Korea, and then the sort of the red countries, which are where they're banned. I mean, digital currencies are banned, not blockchain, obviously. So mm-hmm. you have Indonesia, Vietnam. Um, yeah. So what's going on there? Is, is is there sort of any sort of pattern in that that we can understand where that's going? Is that sort of just oh that's just happens to be that government or that politician is there any pattern in understanding why certain countries are real really pro blockchain and some aren't um yeah i think the ones who know that this is the new internet they know that okay if we don't jump on it we're gonna be left behind from a gdp point of view and and also from getting a seat on the table to have those you know uh, massive conversations that you need to have at a at a global global level um, and the ones who are actually in the red in your map are probably, you know, it's a mix of either the, the, the um, you know, the politicians in the country are myopic or they're misinformed, right? It all driven, it all comes down to who they're surrounding themselves with, right? Mm-hmm. If they're surrounding with them, if you were there, obviously you can, you can potentially influence them in a nice way and say, this is happening, guys, you got to do something. Uh, but if they don't have the right advisors and imply um, then they're just going to you know, take what they've been given I suppose yeah yeah I mean amazing I mean the way you sort of position it with them as well I mean it makes complete sense I, I think do you think they'll all get on board in the end I mean even those red countries you take countries like Vietnam Indonesia do you think like you put it this is the new internet and they're going to miss out they will catch up in time or you know is it possible that you will have countries where it just will become impossible to use these yeah, technologies. it's more latter. I mean, that's. I mean, I gave you that view more from a, um, you know, geopolitical way. But if you actually went to the entrepreneur world, if you went and actually, you know, hung out in all the co-working spaces and where all the startup entrepreneurs are, it's a completely different scene. So there are a lot of blockchain startups that are getting built in Vietnam, in the Philippines, and a lot of these red countries. They're just not public about it, right? Uh, so when the government wakes up and say, okay, we've lifted the ban, you guys can do it, then there's just going to be a flurry of you know, startups just ready to be commercialized. Mm. All right, good. I mean, this has been fascinating. I'm wondering now, I'm going to put you on the spot, PK, but I think you enjoy the challenge is that, you know, if you were to, you know, see even in the next five years, um, application of what we've been talking about today. So it could be crypto machine intelligence. It could be, you know, that, that overlap, that pure overlap between blockchain and AI. But, you know, if you, if you let take your grandfather, you know, good old, uh, you know, descendant of the Razam family, do you think he would uh, have so, an application which would impact his life within the next five years if he was around now that, you know, without having to explain to him, oh, this is blockchain and you have to do this, or this is crypto machine intelligent, you have to do this. Do you think there's something that will touch his generation and you know make their yeah. lives better? <laughs> I mean, I would say yes. Um, and, and he probably won't know that it's actually blockchain. In fact, my mom already knows it, right? So she's got a digital wallet. So ah, well, um, She's pretty advanced then, right? Yeah, but she doesn't know it's blockchain. She's like, hey, what's this money in my wallet? Like, you know. Right. So they, they are, they're the beneficiaries of the technology, the beneficiary of the business that we create, but they don't need to know that it's cryptographically hashed and there's a, you know, a private key and a public key. That's too much information for them, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the key, isn't it, to making this work is that where the technology is invisible in a way. Yep. You yep. Know, it just sort of seamlessly happens in the background. What gets you excited at the moment? What in this particular space, I know you, you're passionate about a lot of things, but is there something particular that we need to watch out for that's on the horizon that you think is going to have a big impact? Um, I, th- I think it's the, it's the human dimension of it. So I'm working with a few um, companies here to understand. And I'm not a design specialist, uh, nor, nor am I a master of human-centered design. Um, I, I think what's important is, and this is a call out, you know, for any designers who are interested in this space, who want to learn this, that's the gap. Um, a lot of this has been, you know, put on the table on a silver plate only for technologists. So if there are um, designers who come to the table, I think they will bridge the gap and bring this technology and, and create stuff that we, we don't even know today. Mm-hmm. Designers in what sense? What, what do you mean? Like, what's the, what's the, what, what is on the table right now for them? What do they need to do? 
So there's an article I'd, I'd ask you to read and your readers as well. It's called Fat Protocol, written by mm-hmm. Union Square Ventures. So uh, you might have read it. I read it, yeah. Um, yeah, so so I think what's happening is a lot of these crypto protocols that we're talking about are fat protocols. So each one of these protocols has not just one feature, but it has like 5, 10, 15 features unlocked in them, right? But the best, the best way to service them is to have really good, simple, beautiful designs that can, you know, uh, allow those features and functions to actually shine. Right. So the way I would explain to you what a peer-to-peer consensus algorithm is completely different than what a designer would say. Now, that's not how we table that to a, a user. right? Mm-hmm. So their lens is completely different, and, and that's what is missing. Yeah, exactly. Exciting times. Pico, it's been a real privilege having you on the show today. Where do people find out more about you? I'm pretty active on the Twitter. So, I mean, so you can, if you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. So in, in Exactly. Yeah, and if anything PK said today that has spiked your interest, piqued your attention, then, you know, feel free to reach out to him. And, you know, I think he enjoys a good thought experiment and the challenge as well. So I'm sure you'll be happy to entertain any kind of communication about this area, especially with, you know, crypto machine intelligence, you know, how people sort of like react to that and what their thoughts are on that. PK, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us and your adventure, of course. And we wish you all the best. And please come back on in the future as well and share any updates that you may have in the world of AI and blockchain and, of course, crypto machine intelligence. We'd love to hear what's the latest and what's in your world, what's going on. So please come back on. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.